Today on the Sitting on the Sideline Dad Podcast, episode 103. Hey, what motivates you? What motivates us? We talk more with my guest, author Steve McChesney, next on the podcast. Let's do this. Welcome to the No Sitting on the Sideline Dad Podcast, a podcast about a journey of discovery and conversations about not sitting on the sideline of life. Let's get involved. Here's host Joe Foley. Hey, welcome to the podcast. Hey, my name is Joe Foley. I want to thank you, really, thank you for being here and listening to this podcast. I really do appreciate it. It really means a lot. And if this is your first time, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. You know what's funny? I get to look at all the stats and all the destinations where everybody's coming from. And I know where you're coming from. I know that I, I found it fascinating. I found the different states, different towns, different locations. I really, really, I really appreciate it. But it's kind of cool that I know that you're listening. And I really do appreciate it. And also makes us doing the podcast worthwhile. I really appreciate it. Next up, my interview with Steve McChesney, author of the book, Rearranging Change, How You Can Mark Through an Ever-Changing World. Steve's a father of three daughters, the Vietnam vet. He's a former stuntman, author, speaker, hip, professional hypnosis, or hypnotist, sorry, hypnotist. I, you know what's funny? I asked him a question. Have you ever used hypnosis on your daughters do their chores? I figured that I want to get into the interview and get his answer, but I was like, that'd be kind of cool. If I got my son going, clean up after yourself. You know, that'd be kind of cool. But the sound of my voice. Uh, I thought it'd be a fun way, thing, kind of funny thing to do. Steve shares his life in Hollywood and, and while just sneaking into Hollywood studios, meeting famous people and kind of friends with them. Because he's a former stunt, stunt man. He's an author. He's done many things. She had a lot of good information in this interview, and I really, really enjoyed the conversation with Steve. So let's jump right in. On the podcast, Steve. Hey, Joe. Thank you for having me. Happy New Year, my friend. Happy New Year, too. Then time. <laughs> one thing, we're going to talk about the five things that motivate people. But one thing I am very interested in, and I found out that you're a professional hypnotist. You didn't actually. I was. Yeah, one of my uh, one of my many jobs that I've had throughout my life, I uh, I was very intrigued. I saw a hypnosis show where everybody got up on stage, and then the hypnotist put them under, and they made them do all kinds of funny things and sing and pretend they had birds on their fingers and things <laughs> like that. And I thought, wow, how interesting is that for the human psychology? And is this rigged? Is this fake? What are they doing up there? <laughs> so I decided to find out. And uh, I studied hypnosis and um, came to find out it's not fake, that hypnosis is real. And uh, I became a professional stage hypnotist where I was the one bringing the people up on the on the stage. And, and in fact, let me tell you a quick little story, Joe, because the first time I ever did a professional show, it was at a moose lodge. And I had three big worries. Worry number one was that nobody was going to show up to the show. Worry number two is that even if they showed up, that I wouldn't be able to get them on the stage. And then worry number three is if I did get them on the stage, I wouldn't be able to put them under hypnosis. So those are my three big worries. Well, my wife, my oldest daughter, and myself drive up to the Moose Lodge, and there's three cars in the parking lot. <laughs> so worry number one, that nobody's going to show up. We go inside, 
And luckily, there's more people inside than there were cars on the outside. So I had about <laughs> maybe 30 people inside the place. Uh, plus, they were still coming in. Then I got one in to do the show. And then we, we have what we call a pre-talk, where we actually get people to come up onto the stage. And so I started doing my pre-talk, and I had 10 chairs set up, and I got three people to come up on the stage. Worry number two, nobody can go on the stage. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I just kept talking and kept talking and kept talking. And finally, I got all 10 chairs filled. Worry number three about being able to put them in, under the induction. I'm doing the induction. And, you know, you're trained when you do hypnosis to look for certain signs that people aren't going under. Right. And then you want to send them back to the audience because you don't want them to interfere with the show. So I'm looking and I'm sending people back to the audience. I end up sending everybody back except for the first three people who came up on the stage. <laughs> And now I'm thinking, this is my first show ever. And then I'm thinking, okay, well, let's do the show. I did the show. Absolutely fantastic. <laughs> Excellent show. The, the audience went nuts. The three people on stage did a great performance. They did everything I asked them to do. I had the whole thing videotaped, you know, and I, I sold CDs at the end of the, at the, end of the, the night. Mm -hmm. And I had people in the audience buying the CDs because they knew the three people that were on the stage. So <laughs> absolutely perfect. So just a great little first show story. So I did it for a while, but I, I stopped doing it only because I wasn't making enough money at it. You know, the Moose Lodge was great, but it only paid $450. And I got to make more than that, you know, for my time. But the most important thing about it is I learned hypnosis. I learned the psychology of hypnosis, NLP, neuro linguistic programming. I learned really the human mind and how it works and, and the difference between the conscious and the subconscious mind. And that's helped me in all aspects of my life, not just in hypnosis, but just in dealing with people and talking to people. Well, interesting too. Is it people more susceptible, susceptible than others? Is there a certain criteria? Uh, yes, yes and no. Everybody experiences hypnosis. Everybody. Mm -hmm. If you've ever dr driven a car and you went from point A to point B, you don't remember everything that you passed. You don't remember the people that were on the sidewalk, but your your subconscious mind saw all of that. You, you kind of drive subconsciously. Consciously, you're thinking about what you're going to have for dinner or what you have to do the next day. So that's a form of hypnosis. You know, if you ever walked into a room and forgot what you walked in there for, that's because your subconscious mind was making you walk there, but you're consciously weren't aware of what you were actually going for at the time. So you have to think back at that. So everybody is susceptible. Now, not everybody will go under hypnosis when you try to do that on a stage presentation. That's why if you ever watch a show like that, the hypnotist never picks people from the audience to come up. He always asks for volunteers okay. because the first step is you've got to have somebody want to go under hypnosis. You've got to have them want to go on stage. They got to be a little bit extroverted. <laughs> That's just interesting and interesting. I'm thinking about when I'm listening to an audiobook or a really good podcast and 45 minutes ago, I'm I just came to my mind. I'm like, wow, that's pretty cool. I never thought about that because I'm thinking to myself, I'm, I'm watching on the on like stage or TV going, that can't be real. There's no way people could do that. And then um, I never tried it myself, but I heard people can lose weight, um, yep. help them quit smoking, get them unstuck most, in life. Yeah, well, I made most of my money, believe it or not, during those days selling the back of the, we call it the back of the room items. I had CDs on, you know, stopping smoking, losing weight, on building your confidence, you know, getting over insomnia. I had different CDs for all of those topics and all of them using hypnosis, you know, 20 minutes a day. Uh, and I, I'll, I'll be honest with you. I used to be a smoker. Mm -hmm. I quit smoking with my own CD. <laughs> honest to God. 
you know, so it works. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever tried this stuff on your, I know your dad had three daughters. Have you ever tried the hypnosis on your daughters? I have actually with their consent when I was, especially when I was first learning it, my youngest daughter, she had a toothache, a really mm. bad toothache. And we couldn't get to the dentist for a few days, but so I, I, I did a hypnosis session with her and I told her every time she felt the pain to tug on her right ear and the pain would go away. And I think it was like the next day we're, we're eating dinner and we're, as we're eating dinner, all of a sudden I see my daughter tugging on her right ear and then she <laughs> goes back to eating. And my wife looked at her and said, did that work? And she goes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's one of the things, uh, hypnotize them, clean your room when you're younger, clean your room. Yeah, right. Clean. <laughs> right. But here's the thing about hypnosis. They're not going to do anything under hypnosis that they wouldn't normally do anyway. <laughs> That's why you want those volunteers that come on stage to be extroverts because they'll, you know, in their mind, they can see themselves with a bird on their finger, you know, and, and they're kissing it or whatever. Uh, but they got to, they, they would do that normally under when they're not under hypnosis. So you know, that's the one thing about hypnosis that it, it, the movies don't show it that way. Cause the movies show it that, you know, I could, I could hypnotize you and, mm -hmm. and have you rob banks for me for the next 10 years. Well, that could never happen because mm -hmm. you wouldn't normally rob a bank in your real life. So you would never do that. Although I must say I had one person get stuck in hypnosis and that woman's still cleaning my house. That's my wife. No, <laughs> That's, that's interesting. That's a funny story. But it, well, also your dad at three, what is it like for you to be a dad? I got to be honest with you. It is the best job of my entire life with the pitfalls that are involved with being a father as well. But the joys and the, just the, the, the pleasure I get out of, they're all grown now. All my girls are grown, but just throughout their entire lives and watching the transformation of of the way that they saw the world and how I could, you know, put as much input as I could without trying to tell them what to do, but try to guide them into the proper directions, but watching them explore and learn about life. And, and, and just the whole, I look at being a father is not, well, first of all, it's not a job, but it's the best job I ever had, but it's also the biggest responsibility that anybody can have as a person is to be a parent. And that's whether you're a father or a mother. And uh, there are certain things, you know, I never had boys. I had three girls and that's kind of why the gray hair is here now. today. <laughs> <laughs> that, that helped, you know, <laughs> but, but there were certain things that mom knew how to deal with when it came to the girls that I just couldn't touch. I mean, I knew about them. I understood it, but I couldn't touch it the way she could. Um, I never had a boy. I know you've got a son, yes. but I've never had a boy where, you know, being a male, that I could share that influence with, which I kind of missed, but it's okay. You know, uh, having the, I was given what God gave me and I'm, I'm good with it. You know, just a, a wonderful, wonderful opportunity to be a father. Well, that's what interests you. Like you said, I have, a, I have a son who's going to be eight this year. He thinks he's 18, but, um, <laughs> but it is, it is, it is a wonderful experience and um, I wouldn't give it up for the world. One thing that's interesting too, you have an interesting backstory too. You're also a stuntman for many years. I was, I was, um, I'll take you back a little bit further than that, Joe. I, I grew up in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. That was, uh, that was my stomping grounds as a kid. And I, re I went to Santa Monica elementary school on Santa Monica Boulevard and right across the street from that elementary school, it's actually one block over is the Hollywood cemetery. Oh, wow. And, and then right behind the cemetery is the back wall of Paramount studios. And so when I was, uh, probably fourth grade, fifth grade, I used to, 
when I got out of school, I would always go over and sneak into the studios. And I had this perfect little spot between the wall and a gate that they had that was big enough for somebody my size to get into. Well, once I was in, nobody knew who I was, but nobody, they didn't question me because they thought I'm some, I'm a kid of one of the actors or I'm a kid of one of the directors or they never knew. So they didn't never approach me. So I would just kind of wander around to different sound stages and, and start watching the filming. And I, I did that at Paramount. I did that at Desilu Studios, Desilu at the time. I used to watch the Gomer Pyle show being filmed. I was a regular at the Dick Van Dyke show. Uh, I, I used to watch them film Bonanza when they were shooting interior scenes of that. So I, I was, that was my indoctrination to Hollywood just by being a kid and being around it. So when I was an adult, I was in the army. I got out of the army and came back to LA and uh, went to film school, but I had to become a waiter because the government paid for my schooling, but they didn't pay for my rent. They didn't pay for my food. So I became a waiter. I hated the job. I respect waiters. I tip them immensely. They, they have a very difficult job. There's nothing worse than hungry, grumpy people. But a friend of mine in film school who was a stuntman, and he said, listen, I, there's a stunt school in Chatsworth. Uh, the guy that's Charles Bronson's stunt double runs it. You know, why don't you do that instead? You can probably get on pretty quick. Because, you know, my whole life I was a gymnast. I was in martial arts and all that stuff. So I went to stunt school. And one of the things that Kim, Kim Kahana was my teacher. He was Charles Bronson's stunt double. One of the things that he taught us was how to sneak into studios. Oh, wow. And I said, hey, man, I got that down. <laughs> <laughs> when I was a kid, I did it all the time. So I did that. I actually snuck into Universal Studios, and they were filming Battlestar Galactica at the time. Oh, wow. And that was one Lauren of those shows Green, I watched. Yeah, Lauren Green was one of the stars. And remember, when I was a kid, I used to go to the Bonanza set. And I met Lauren Green when I was a kid. I was known as Little Stevie because I was there a lot. And well, by the way, I never finished that part of the story. After they found out I didn't belong to anybody, yes, they, they still didn't mind me being there because now they knew who I was. I mean, okay. that I was a safe kid. I wasn't, you know, and that my parents were, you know, okay. I wasn't lost or anything <laughs> else. So I sneak into Universal Studios. I go to the Battlestar Galactica set. It's a closed set, meaning nobody's allowed in that's not working on the, on the show. I go in anyway. I see Lauren Green sitting in his chair, director's chair, and I start walking toward him. And this Production assistant stops me. He says, can I help you? And I went, yeah, I'm, I'm here to see Mr. Green. Uh, okay, who are you? I said, I'm, I'm an old friend of his. Yeah, okay, come on, you got to go. You can't, you can't be here. I said, no, really, I'm an old friend of his. And I'm doing the whole arm movements and talking to him. And I'm pointing over at Lauren Green. And Lauren Green's seeing all this. And he goes, the production assistant looks over to him. And, and he goes like this. And he waves, waves me over, waves me and the production assistant over. Mm. And so he, we walk over there. And I said, Mr. Green, I said, I'm sorry to bother you. Um, you probably don't remember me, but when I was a kid, I used to come into the Bonanza set all the time. And he goes, Stevie? <laughs> and I went, yeah. He goes, oh, how are you doing? He gets up, he hugs me. The production assistant like, walks away. I just disgusted that he couldn't get me out of there. He goes, what are you doing? I said, well, I just got out of the Army. I'm in stunt school, and I'm, I'm you know, trying to become a stunt man. And he goes, did you get your SAG card yet? And I said, no, not yet. I'm still working on that. And he goes, wait a minute. He calls over the same production assistant back and he goes, go get the, he said the director's name and I forget the name right now, but he goes, go, go get him. Tell him I want this man to have a job doing some kind of stunt on this show so we can get a SAG card. And oh, wow. so that's how I got my SAG card. I did a stunt on Battlestar Galactica and it was a real easy one. I got punched and I fell down, <laughs> 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 but so that was the start of it. I ended up doing over 350 movies and TV shows. Uh, I got hurt. So I ended my stunt career. But I got to tell you, one of the shows that I was on, I didn't do stunt work, but I was an actor on, was uh, Star Trek Six. Oh, wow. 
and and the reason I bring that up is because that was the last movie that the original cast did from the TV series Star Trek. And um, I didn't realize at the time when you're working on a, on a set like that, every day they give you what they call a call sheet. A call mm-hmm. sheet's an 11 by 17 paper, <laughs> and on it it tells you the actor's name or the the crew's name, tells you what time to uh, be on the set, what time to be in makeup, what time for wardrobe. So it's a call sheet for the next day. So everybody would get one, and then they'd read it and they'd throw it away. I did the same thing. <laughs> I worked on that show for, I think, just a little over two weeks. Oh, wow. Filming. Every day, throwing away my call sheets. Come to find out later in life, because it was the last film that the original cast did, those, star- those call sheets were selling at conventions for up to $1,000 a piece. Oh, wow. I could have been a rich man, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> but you have a lot of interesting experience working in Hollywood and stuff like that, too, doing stuff. Any crazy stunts you did that you like wow uh, i can't believe i survived that probably most of them uh, <laughs> no no one thing about stunt work that people don't realize even though there is danger involved safety is the first thing there's an old there's an old joke in hollywood that there's a, a director and he's talking to an actor and he says okay i want you to get on that horse i want you to go up that hill and then ride the horse over the hill and out of frame and the actor says okay and starts walking up the hill kicking rocks and the director says, what are you doing? He goes, well, I'm kicking rocks so the horse doesn't stumble and fall. And the director goes, forget about it. Give me a stunt, man. Come over here. It's a stunt guy. Tells the stunt guy, get on that horse right over the hill and right out of frame. Stunt guy says, okay. Starts walking up the hill, kicking rocks. <laughs> but that's true. Safety is a big thing. So there's not a lot that can really go wrong in stunts, although things do go wrong. Um, I think the ones that, that I wouldn't say scared me the most, but caused the biggest adrenaline rush in me was high falls high falls falling off buildings yeah because you know when you're up there and you're getting ready to to fall all you see on that airbag it looks like a postage stamp you know yeah wow and and there's a little red dot in the middle of it that you've got to hit and you know depending on how high you are is how far off that roof you can you can project yourself and still hit that airbag i've seen some stunt guys hit the edge of an airbag where the airbag scans straight up you know, oh, wow. luckily, if they'd have gone one more inch off of that roof, they would have hit the cement instead of the airbag. And so things like that can happen. But it's it's all pretty well thought out. And good stunt coordinators are, are really safety conscious about it. Um, I ended, I did get end up getting hurt. And it was on a non-union film. I I, I got thrown out of a boxing ring and oh, we were wow. shooting at the, the Olympic Auditorium in Los Angeles. And um, I was supposed to hit a mat. And the guy that threw me out of the ring, it's like a big wrestler. And he was... I'm little, he's big. <laughs> I, I saw that mat fly underneath me. Well, I learned in stunt school, tuck and roll, tuck and roll. I did that. I tucked, I rolled. I ended up doing a flip and a half and I landed on the cement floor on my left knee and it shattered my kneecap. So that was it. Yeah. I was done. Now I didn't need to be done. Uh, all my stunt buddies, they, they said, what are you crazy? You've made it in Hollywood. You, you've, you've, you've gone over that barrier where you're working as much as you want. You're making good money and you're going to quit. And I was like, you know, I got to be honest with you. It's a pain I never want to deal with again. Now, those guys have had all of their bones broken. They're wired together. Buddy Joe Hooker was one of my friends. I mean, he, that guy, great stuntman. But, man, I'm, I'm sure I haven't talked to Buddy in a long time. But he, I'm sure that he's in pain today because of his age. You know, that stuff will catch up with you. So I, I ended the stunt business. Now, I didn't get out of the film business or the movie business. But I did get out of the stunt business. I, I did two things, actually. I became a mm-hmm. talent manager because I had a lot of celebrity friends. And I also opened a restaurant. What kind of restaurant? It was, a, well, my menu was from around the world. Each page had a different country. You wanted <laughs> China, you wanted America, you wanted Italian. 
and it was in, in LA and in Encino, it was called the LA Cabaret. And the reason I even got into the restaurant, I love cooking. I was a cook in the army. And so I let that, in fact, I'll, I'll be honest with you, Joe, throughout my life, as we go through different jobs, one has led to the next in a ways that you would never imagine. And I think that's true in everybody's life. Exactly. You know, I was a cook in the army, had no idea to ever own a restaurant, but I ended up opening a restaurant. But I had a lot of celebrity friends that used to come to my restaurant. And because celebrities were there, the public wanted to come there. So I was a very successful restaurant owner. The problem was I was now working more than I wanted to. I was seven days a week, you know, early morning to late, well, to early morning again, <laughs> pretty much. And uh, so I ended up selling it. But I was a talent manager for almost 20 years, had a couple of celebrity clients. And I learned a lot about marketing mm-hmm. as a manager because I'm selling a brand. And that brand obviously was a celebrity. And, and, and one of my clients, I, I couldn't sell him under his name because the, the, his name wasn't the brand, but it was his ability that was the brand. And his name was Michael Winslow. Oh, okay. um, he was in all the police academy mo- movies. And he was the guy that did all the sound effects, the noises with his voice. Oh, cool. I love that guy. <laughs> yeah. So, and so I, I sold him, you know, I was, he was, we were together for 18 years, but oh. I sold him not by name because nobody knew who Michael Winslow was, but they, Oh, you mean the guy that makes the noises in police Academy? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny how, you know, marketing works in that way. Branding. So again, that because of that experience for what I do today, I'm a coach, I'm a business coach, you know, and that, that actually, I learned so much from that by the marketing of, of celebrity talent. I learned a lot because of hypnosis and using NLP and, and the psychology like we got talked about motivators. I talk about what motivates people to, to take action. That was because of what I learned, you know, back then. What's interesting too, that probably next good, good segue. The next thing we want to talk about is what are the top five things that motivate people to take action? I think that's important, especially the new, the beginning of the new year. Yes. Yes. Well, there's actually, I, I actually have 12, but I will give you the top five. The first one, believe it or not, is fear. Fear causes people to take action. A uh, great example, if you're, you know, jogging in, in the park and all of a sudden a rattlesnake appears in front of you, you're motivated to take run. some action, aren't you? Yeah, run, <laughs> run, jump, something. <laughs> so fear is a strong motivator. And in, 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 I always bring it back to the marketing aspect of it and mm-hmm. people that use fear as motivators. Well, I'll, I will give you a real life example before I do that. Right now, COVID-19. Yes. Fear. People are afraid. They're afraid to get into crowds of people. They're afraid to leave their house. Fear is motivating them to go and try to get this vaccine as soon as possible. I mean, so fear is a motivator for that. But, but companies that use it, alarm companies. I don't know if you have your house alarmed, but yeah. my house is alarmed. You know, and it's, if it was my way, I don't know if I'd alarm my house and pay for that service. But my wife, she wants it. She wants to feel secure. Commercials, all the commercials. They see the yeah. guy stalking and banging on the window. Fear. Yeah. yeah. They're using fear to motivate you. I mean, it's, you know, insurance companies use fear. Uh, even an insurance that you don't even think about, like life insurance. You know, life insurance, you, you, you think you're doing it for comfort because mm-hmm. if you die, now you've left money to your family. But that's not how insurance companies sell it to you. They might use a little bit of that comfort motivator, but they're using fear. They say to you instead, what happens to your family if you die? How are they going to survive? You know what I mean? So it's just the way fear is used. And then probably just as strong. Well, all of these are just as strong in different ways, but love is a big motivator. Love for your son, love for my daughters. I mean, that motivates us, doesn't it? Exactly. (laughs) In in so many ways, 
you know, in, in company, people love to be in love. They love to fall in love. They love to love things. Companies that do it, florists, florists. Oh, Valentine's Day is coming up soon, too. People are like, oh, all those commercials, you have to buy those, those really fuzzy pajamas for Valentine's Day because she'll be comfortable and happy. And That's right. And she'll love you even more. more. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. You know, jewelry companies do the same thing. Uh, even on, you know, modern day technology, dating apps, mm -hmm. love is their main motivator, you know, find your love, find, you know, the, the person for you. And, and then they can, they can niche it even further. They can do it for people over 50. They can do it for people over 70. I mean, it's, <laughs> you know, but love is still the motivator. That's really, really strong for that. If you ever fly Southwest airlines, you know, they, their logo on every plane in front of the seats, you're going to see that heart. Yes. Logo. Yes. I do see that. And, yep. Yep. And their, and their stock symbol is LUV love. So, oh, wow. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. And so love is a, a huge motivator. They use that in all of their marketing and, and their, their campaigning uh, because people love love. McDonald's even does it, you know, just, uh, just loving it or you're loving it. The arches, slogan that the arches, using. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so it's love is a big one too. And then we'll go to one that's, that's not so much emotional as it is sensory, but it's a motivator. And that's anything you can smell, touch, feel, taste here. You ever walked through an airport and smelled, smelled Cinnabons? Oh, yes, yes. What's it make you want to do? Grab a cup of coffee and get a Cinnabon. You got that right, because it's sensory appeal. You don't even realize how they're, they're, they're actually doing it on purpose, the marketing that's being done to get you to go buy that Cinnabon. I've seen, I've got friends of mine who work in the, like a home show business where they're mm -hmm. vendors. Yes. And in, in their booth, they'll have a little induction stove in a, in a pan and they'll fry up bacon. Oh, wow. Because people smell that bacon. They want to know what that is, right? Everything's good with bacon. <laughs> everything goes with bacon. So it's, it's just a great motivator. And, you know, it's not something that's brand new. They've been doing it for years. When I was a kid in Hollywood, I used to go to the World Theater. I used to make oh, 50 cents. Oh, wow. And in those days, when you saw a movie, a two-hour movie, there was an intermission in the middle of it. So you'd see an hour of it, then there'd be a 10-minute intermission, and then there'd be another hour to finish the movie. Well, it, they, what they would do before that, that intermission came, they would stick a frame or two of popcorn and soda. Oh, yes. Now, consciously, you're not even seeing it because, you know, it's, it's 32 frames a second or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. So you're not even seeing it, but your subconscious mind does see it. Yes. So as soon as that intermission hits, first thing you want to do, go grab some popcorn and a soda, right? <laughs> so it's sensory appeal. I, I live in Orlando, Florida, and um, we, we have Disney World here. And I, I, Hollywood Studios, my wife and I, we have an annual pass. We like to go and just hold hands and, you know, spend an hour or two there. But I love the marketing part of it. Because, oh, definitely. Definitely. You know, Hollywood Studios in the back, they have an Italian restaurant. Mm -hmm. And I promise you, if you ever walk by that restaurant, anytime between 11 o'clock and two o'clock in the afternoon, you're going to smell nothing but Italian herbs and spices because they <laughs> whiffed it out into that walkway where all those people are walking by because that's the lunchtime. And as you're walking by and you're smelling that great Italian seasoning, it's like, oh, let's go eat here. <laughs> What's well, one thing what you say about Disney World? I mean, and it's still, you know, motivating people and stuff, but too, but they are great at marketing their product when it comes oh, to yeah. them. And they, and they keep, and they keep up in their prices and up in their price and then still sell out. But their marketing is genius. But you know what else is genius? What's that? It's like anything we do in life. If you can serve people the way people want to be served, it doesn't matter what your price is. They are serving people the way that want to be served. It's a very clean atmosphere. It's a very family, wholesome atmosphere that Disney provides. It's, it's you know, 
that's the one reason why we have the annual pass. It's not that we're big Disney fans. It's just we love going to a place that is clean. It's courteous. The, the, the people who work there, our customer service is second to none. The hospitality is great. It's, it's just a good break from the real world that we live in. Because let's face it, the real world we live in sometimes can be a little bit terrifying. Exactly. Especially now they get with the era of COVID and stuff like that. Yep. Yep. So they do make the money that way. So sensory appeal, but a couple more things on sensory appeal. You've picked up magazines where they had that little fold that you opened up and you can smell the perfume or the cologne. Yeah. Uh, who bought me? I mean, who bought, people don't sell a lot of magazines now, but I remember that. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Wait, I don't know if it's, it's not too far away that we're going to have some kind of a scratch and sniff from our computers. <laughs> it's coming. It's coming. <laughs> it's coming. It's got it. Because sensory appeal works so strongly. I mean, that's why and it, it is coming eventually. You know, whoever comes up with that whole idea of where the computers, I just went and bought a new PC not re, uh, recently. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted a regular PC. But when I got to Best Buy, they were telling me, you know, get this gamer's computer. It's got this, it's got that. And it's got colorful lights that as I don't care about the colorful <laughs> lights and all that. I just want a good computer. But you know what? It's not going to be long where that's going to be able to give you some odors too. Oh, yes. I think that's coming. You well, they're the, they the VR goggles now that you can go on trips, like go to Italy, go, and it looks realistic. All you need is a smell. One that's old is mankind is a motivator is convenience. And, you know, I don't, uh, you remember the 7-Eleven stores? Yes. 7-Eleven stores became famous because they're convenience stores. They're stores that are on the corner that you can stop by and get some milk real quick or a soda or something like that. And they've, they've expanded. Now they have gas. You can get gas there, too. But that's a, that was the beginning of really convenience stores. Uh, other ways that you see convenience is any drive-through, whether it's a restaurant or a bank, it's convenient for you to drive through. You're seeing stores nowadays have those lanes that you for pickup. You've, mm -hmm. you've already ordered online or whatever, and you're just going to park there and call them and tell them what space you're in. They're going to bring your groceries to you. That's convenient. So anytime you, people can use convenience, if they're, if they're marketing with people, you're going to have a, a stronger chance of getting them as a customer because you're making it convenient for them. Uber Eats is a convenient thing. Uh, Uber, Lyft, convenient. Have that car in five minutes. So convenience is a strong, strong motivator. It's interesting, uh, too. People like, yeah, especially the time of COVID, people have the groceries delivered, food delivered. This whole, this whole year basically created a whole new industry. Or been here but kind of pushed the industry up a little bit well it has and it's going to be interesting to see what happens because a lot of the restaurants restaurants have been a good business for a long time i mean people like the convenience of going out and, and eating and being waited on and things like that however that waited on part of it has kind of gone away i had chinese my wife's birthday was yesterday we had chinese food mm -hmm. so we ordered chinese we have a great little chinese place that we like to get takeout from well they no longer have tables and chairs you can't eat there you can only take out or they can deliver to you that's the only way well i think that store or restaurant owners like that chinese restaurant they may never ever have in store eating again they may get rid of that completely because they found that this new model works where people aren't they don't have to worry about the, the customer service part of it of people being there they just have to be able to give them quality customer service as long as they walk in grab their food and leave you know <laughs> or they deliver food to you. And I think you're going to find a lot of different places are going to go to that model. I started to see it actually before COVID hit because 
places like Burger King and Taco Bell, they were already toying with the idea of not having in-store seating, just kitchens okay. where you could drive through or they could deliver. See, my, my dog just went by. <laughs> <laughs> That's the other thing about working from home. <laughs> what is the next thing that motivates people? Well, there's always hero worship. We as people, as humans, we never want to be the first to try something. So we always look for somebody else that did it first. And you see that with when people give testimonials, or if they're marketing to you and they've got testimonials listed, it means somebody else did it first. Well, hero worship is anytime you have a celebrity say that what you've got is good. Okay. Whether it's Matthew McConaughey saying you should buy a Lincoln Continental, or it's Oprah Winfrey saying, this is the book of the month on my book club. Because <laughs> when she does that, that book skyrockets in sales. You know, Lincoln has sold a bunch of cars because Matthew McConaughey said they were good cars. You know, there's also the downside to that. I'm sure that Jello wishes they never had Bill Cosby as their spokesman, <laughs> you know. <laughs> But, you know, you don't know, you don't, because whenever you're dealing with humans, whether they're heroes or not, things can change of whatever happens with them. But heroes don't always have to be a celebrity. They could be somebody locally. It could be a teacher that did yeah. something great for kids. You know, what are the ones that gets all of us? Curiosity. If you're curious about something, you want to know more. Picture this. Picture you're in a restaurant. I'll go back to the restaurant business. Okay. Let's say that you're sitting at a booth and there's a booth next to you. And in the booth next to you, there's a, a man and a woman, and they're having an argument, but they're trying to be quiet about it. Mm -hmm. What are you doing? Listening. Man, you are just leaning in, trying <laughs> right, to hear that right. argument. What's going on? I want to know yeah. what's going on. I want to know. It's because we're curious. People are curious. You know, and if I take it back to the marketing side of things, anytime you have a headline that's a question, mm -hmm. like where have all the honeybees gone? Aren't you interested in finding out because you've heard so many things about bees and how they're important to our lives? So the, the curiosity aspect of it is what motivates us to take action. So that's another huge motivator. I mean, and like I said, there's 12 of them all together. I also have health. I got pleasure. I got generosity, comfort, mental stimulation. Those are all motivators that motivate us in some way or another. But the ones I gave you are pretty much the biggest ones because we all can experience it. We all know that it works because it works on us. Also, too, um, you also have a book. And if you have any courses you want to talk about? Yeah. Actually, I, I wrote a book. I've written, by the way, Joe, I've written four books. My latest book is my most successful book. It's called Rearranging Change, How You Market to an Ever-Changing World. Let me see. I think it's an opportunity to show it, the cover. Um, <laughs> it is, uh, it, it, I actually wrote it before COVID. So the title, Rearranging Change, I, I, you know, I had no idea how true that would be when <laughs> I wrote it. But it's, it's a book on marketing. Uh, it's for small business people. It's actually for anybody, authors, coaches, speakers, authors. It, it's, it's a book about what motivates people. It's a book about copywriting, headline, lead, body, call to action. It's a book about communication styles. You know, good example, half the population just want bullet points. They don't need a bunch of details. Okay. The other half of the population need details. Mm -hmm. <laughs> So, but you need to know who you're talking to, which one of those is it? Because if, if you're talking to somebody just wants bullet points, you're trying to give them details, they're going to be lost. They're going to start checking <laughs> their emails. I mean, you know, that's the kind of thing it is. So the book goes into that as well. You know, I talk about uh, what marketing and movies have in common, you know, <laughs> because they have a lot in common. So it's, it's a great book. And it's, like I said, it's my, my, my best book because it went to number one in five different business categories on Amazon. Oh, wow. So 
Congratulations. Very pleased about that. Yeah. Um, in fact, for those of you listening to Joe's show, I know who you are. If you go to rearrangingchange.com, I'm going to give you a free PDF copy of that book. Now, if you want the if you want the one that you can actually hold in your hands, you're going to have to go to Amazon and buy that hard copy. But I, I will give you a free PDF copy at, at rearrangingchange.com. So my other books, though, I got to tell you, Joe, because it's kind of fun. Okay. The first book I ever wrote, remember I had I owned a restaurant. I yep. love food. I love cooking. So I wrote a cookbook. Now, the difference is I wanted one that I also like humor. I like to have a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. So I wrote it for the birthday gag gift market. And it's called... <laughs> The Denture Wearer's Cookbook. Oh, Parcels and Slippers. <laughs> how did that work out? How would that book work out? Well, I learned a lot of lessons. I published it myself, and I couldn't find a publisher, and I found out why after I wrote it. I, I wanted to write it, so I wrote it, right? But the problem the publishers had was they said, well, if we put this book in a bookstore, people with dentures would be embarrassed to buy it because it's <laughs> telling people that they wear dentures, right? And I didn't even think of that aspect of it, but I get that. Egos are, are important. And so they didn't see that, that, that the market was there. And I said, man, you, most of the people in the world have some form of denture. I mean, this is, <laughs> there's a big market for this. Anyway, so they didn't go for it. So I started to, to figure out marketing on my own. I got a hold of Spencer Gifts. Are you familiar with Spencer Gifts? Yeah, Spencer Gifts used, used to be in the mall. In the malls, right. And they have all the gag gifts and they got all kinds of funny things. I sold 10,000 copies of the book to Spencer Gifts. Oh, wow. That's amazing. That's pretty cool. Well, it's amazing, but here's the hard part. We had the books printed, boxed, and sent to Spencer Gifts. They sent them back to me, and they said, no, we need them boxed in boxes of six each so that we can distribute them to our stores. They didn't want to do the, that part of it. Took my wife, myself, my daughters. I got pictures in my house of all of these books and all of these boxes. <laughs> Took us about a month and a half to get it all done and sent back to them. They put them in the stores. I had friends all over the United States going into Spencer Gifts. I, I wanted to find out that they were there. They sold out of all of those books in two weeks. Oh, wow. That's pretty cool. I thought, I thought, oh, my goodness. That means that uh, I'm going to get a reorder here real quick. Nope. Nope. They wouldn't reorder. They said I was unprofessional. And uh, I went, what do you mean? They said, well, you should have known to give us those books in six. We had to wait two months for it, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, yeah, but I didn't know. It's my first time. Please forgive me. No, they wouldn't <laughs> forgive me. Now, today, I might even go back to them because this has been, uh, I guess, about 15 years since mm -hmm. I did, I've done this. And the guy that was the buyer is probably no longer there. So I might be able to, to re <laughs> revisit that because the book is good. It's funny. And it's full of real recipes. So, you know, people who get the book, not only do they get a chuckle or a laugh out of it, then they can actually use it for the rest of their lives because it's got great recipes in it, you know? So anyway, so that was the first one out. I was in the movie business. So I wrote a book called uh, how to succeed in the business of acting mm -hmm. it was written for actors from my management days. I learned about what an actor needs to know to make it in the, in the movie business. And then I was in the martial arts business as well. So I wrote a book on the after school pickup business. Meaning I, did you see, I did see that book on Amazon after school pickup business. Yeah. How, how did that work out for you? It was actually great. I had probably the best after school program of any martial arts school in, in, that I know of uh, because of the way I did it. And that's why I wrote the book. But we used to, you know, when you're in the martial arts business, your biggest audience is going to be middle schoolers. Uh, the fifth, sixth and seventh graders basically are your biggest audience, your biggest customer. So we had to get into the schools and we had ways of getting into the schools. First of all, you don't go to a school trying to teach martial arts because mm -hmm. principals and teachers, they don't want their kids learning how to fight. 
Mm-hmm. So you go in with different ways. You go in to teach them, you know, self-confidence and things like that. And, and of course, in, in where I live in Florida, we have, you know, testing once a year. And so I'd go in there and teach them how to get ready for these tests without, you know, stressing out because the teachers are all stressed out. And so they got us into the schools. Once we're into the schools, we give them, you know, f- passes for free martial arts class that they give to their parents and bring them. Now you got to sell to the parents. Well, one of the things that I sold was the after-school pickup business. I made a promise to the parents that not only would I pick their children up from their school safely, get them to the martial arts school, I would give them a martial arts lesson, and I would ensure that their homework was done all before five o'clock when their parents came to pick them up. Because my philosophy was if the child had the martial arts class and the homework done, now there's good quality parent and family time for the rest of the night. Yeah. And and with that philosophy in mind, I wrote this book on the techniques and the things that you do and how you hire the right teachers or after school teachers, how you hire the right, you know, van drivers and safety and all that stuff is all in that book. So and it did really well. I actually wrote it for martial arts school owners. Mm-hmm. And I sold when I first wrote it, I sold it for one hundred and seventy five dollars each. Oh, wow. And I sold a bunch because it was a targeted thing. Now, of course, you can get on Amazon for I think it's like two ninety nine for the ebook, but you know, so but but it was it it served its purpose. I made some good money with it, and uh, and it it just kept me going as a writer because I love to write. I, I am a writer. I, you know, I've written screenplays. I've written these books. I I love to write, so that really came out handy. Uh, one of the things about just real quick on my book that I have right now, the um, rearranging change. Another thing I learned about writing was you need to be able to write not dumbed down, but where the general population can easily digest. You know, we've all written, read books that where we had to read a chapter over again because we didn't understand what it said. Mm-hmm. You know, my book's not like that. My book is an easy read. I mean, it's, it's, I write it for somebody like me who wants to read it and enjoy themselves, number one, but also be able to comprehend what I'm reading without having to look at it two or three times. I don't ever want somebody to go to a dictionary to figure out the word I use in my book, you know? <laughs> That doesn't happen, but that's how part of being a parent that taught, you know, I learned that by being a parent. Conversational kind of keep it like normal conversation. That's one thing I think it's um important to, and people understand things better that way. Instead of being, you know, step one, step two, be very, very, right. it's not a good way to get, to get to people. Well, final thoughts, wrapping up, um, when you want to leave with the audience, maybe being a dad, a motivation, something like that. Yeah. I, 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 first of all, for all of you parents that are listening right now, God bless you, man. You've got such a, an outstanding life just for doing the job that you're doing. I, I hate even call it a job. It's not a job. It's a pleasure. It's a, it's a privilege to be a parent. Uh, so do what you do and, and, and make sure that, that, that you, you enjoy every moment because the moments pass very quickly and, and they really do. As a father of three girls, and all three are my youngest is now 27. I mean, so you know they're they're they grow quickly. But there's another part of that life too. Don't worry about it. When they grow older and they move out, you're still going to have plenty of parenting to do. <laughs> I promise. <laughs> so do that. Uh, if you're interested, like I said, go to rearrangingchange.com. You can get a, a free PDF copy of my book. I think you'll enjoy it. I am a coach, but I'm not selling you my coaching services. That that happens organically. If you're interested, you can learn all about that uh, later on through my book. That's our starting point of where we can learn about ourselves. Uh, Just enjoy your life. Always remember that no matter good or bad, 
it's all good because we learn from our failures. That's, they're not failures. They're just education. And trust it from a guy that's been through a lot of different occupations. <laughs> Every one of those meant to be because it led me to the next. And that led me to the next. And that led me to where I am today. And I'm a very happy man today. So just continue on and, and enjoy it and understand that there's a silver lining to everything, including this COVID-19. Well, thank you, Steve. Thank you much for being on the podcast today. Everything, all the links will be in the show notes for this episode. I really want to say thank you, Steve. Thank you very much. Hey, Joe, man, it's been my pleasure. And, it, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll talk again and, and best of love to your son and, 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 you know, keep on doing what you're doing. Thank you. You're welcome. I want to thank Steve Chesney for being a guest on the podcast. You can find more about him or over at imaginingmarketing.com. You can find all the links in the show notes for this episode at nosendingonthesideline.com slash 103. Please reach out, leave a comment. If you have a question, or just want to say hello. Uh, I think it'd be kind of, kind, of, kind of cool. Hey, I'm out here. You can find all my contact information at nosendingonthesideline.com slash contact. Hey, final thoughts, wrapping up, I think. If you really, really, really like this content, and you enjoy the podcast, please tell a friend. Share it. Subscribe. If you really enjoyed, you share with your friends. Thank you for listening. Until next time, take care. Give your kids a hug. Tell them how you love them. Because you know what? In this time of the recording of COVID, call a friend. Tell them, ask them how they're doing. Because we're, we're all isolated and stuff like that. It just tell them you, you miss them. I'm thinking of you. Until next time, take care. God bless. See you.